evangelists and continue to work our way through the uh, prophet. I want to encourage you, even if you don't or haven't normally uh, joined us on our Sunday evening discipleship sessions, uh, just want to give you an especial invitation and encouragement to do that uh, for the study that we're coming up. Brother Shane will be leaning, uh, leading. Uh, I was thinking this week about just how uh, relevant and necessary uh, that subject is and conversations about that subject from a biblical point of view are to us. Um, I mean, we're living in a strange generation. Uh, we have otherwise uh, educated, intelligent people uh, giving us as many as 70 different genders. Uh, we have a sitting Supreme Court justice who could not or refused to define what a woman is. And, it, you know, we, we scratch our head at these things and we wonder, how in the world, how did we get here? And one of the things I think this study deals with and challenges, will challenge us so much on is, is that what we're dealing with now has been coming on for generations incrementally. And it has saturated the culture and even leaked into the church to the degree that so many things that, um, that we're scratching our heads that they could say, they didn't just spring up overnight. They didn't just decide in, in 2023 that we don't no, no longer know what a woman is. Uh, that's been long in the making. And it's manifesting itself in ways now that because we've been asleep as the church, and we've been asleep as a culture even to the ideologies infiltrating our culture. We're scratching our heads now wondering, how could you say such a ridiculous thing? And to me, it's, it's almost an omen or a portends what will even be said within the church walls in a very short time because of the saturation of this uh, upside down disorderly ideology. And that's really what this uh, study is going to be dealing with, and it'll really challenge us as well. So even if you haven't normally done that, I encourage you to, over the next couple of months, make a special effort. Uh, try to arrange your schedule to join us for that. Uh, I think you'll be really helped by it, and I think it'll be uh, very much necessary for your uh, to put you in a place to where you can be on guard against this ideology uh, that's creeping into our culture more and more and even into the church as well. So just a, just a word of encouragement there. Uh, so we're looking at chapter 6 uh, tonight in Amos. Uh, if you've not been here uh, on Sunday evenings or Wednesdays, you're kind of getting every third sermon through, Jan through uh, the book of Amos. And I would encourage you, if that's the case, uh, that you would go back and, and on the website and listen to the others, especially on Wednesday night. Uh, but I'm really keying off chapter 5, which I shared Wednesday night, which was uh, verse 14 and 15, where maybe some of the very few flickers of light uh, in, the, in the book of Amos. Otherwise, it's severe uh, condemnation and the forecast of God's judgments coming upon uh, his people Israel. And if you don't get that sense of light there, then you just get burdened and weighed down by the almost repetitive declarations of God in regard, regards to the severity of the discipline that he's bringing on his people. But in that verse, it says, seek good and not evil that you may live and that thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you just as you have said, hate evil, love good and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Three times in that passage, 
chapter 5, Amos gives us the exhortation. The first is from God himself, seek me that you may live. The second one is God's admonition through his prophet where Amos says, seek the Lord that you may live. And the third one is here, seek good and not evil that you may live. That's it. That's the only light. If you let, if you disregard that, there's no other light for you. And that's exactly the message God has been sending to his people through Amos. They have already in the past set aside that light, that God, faithfulness to that God. And they had come to rely upon themselves in many ways, exploiting the very blessings and mercies of God. And, and, and they had turned away now from God and there's nothing else left. And all that they were, had come to trust in, he's about to rattle and shake and bring to the ground and show and to demonstrate that it is nothing. And that's exactly, I think, the application. I was thinking this week as well, there is a sense in which you could take the book of Amos and make application to America uh, and I say that because of our insistence that we were founded upon Judeo-Christian values. Much of, the, much of our constitution, much of our belief system reflect, uh, in general at least, those Judeo-Christian principles. So you could say, okay, this is a godly nation, God's chosen nation. But there's more of a direct application to the church. Because he's speaking to God's chosen people here and God chooses us in Christ as the church. So this could be equally applied with equal force to the church, at least the professing church, if not the church universe or the church, the body of Christ, certainly the professing church. So you can make application in both of these. So let's read chapter six together because he's following up. Uh, by the way, I was thinking chapter 6 is almost as if he picks up this narrative in anticipation that the light shone, shone, shining in, in chapter 5 was in large part not going to be seen, not going to be heard, not going to be heeded. And so he picks up the narrative again. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. So he's expanding now, not just in Israel, but now he's speaking of Zion. That's down in Judah. So he's including now Judah in this as well. But woe to those and the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calne and look and go from there to Hamath the Great and then go down to Goth of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or, in other words, are Israel and Judah better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity and would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oil, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob. 
and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. And it will be if 10 men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there anyone else with you? And that one will say, no one. Then he will answer, keep quiet for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. Do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnim for ourselves? For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us this morning to, to hear with hearing ears. Lord, it's so easy for us in our fleshliness and in the comfort that we've created for ourselves in this secular world to, to tune out the truth of your word. In fact, that truth sounds to us at times completely alien to what we might anticipate. In many ways, Father, it, it feels as though the, the, church, the professing church institutionally perhaps in this nation and certainly this nation, even, even in those flickers of light as Amos has shared in chapter 5, we have turned a deaf ear and a, deaf, and, and a blind eye to that as well. We see fires and hurricanes and tsunamis and violence rising and corruption all around us, yet we, we continue to go on and we, and we act as though there's no call for repentance nationally and particularly within the church. So, Father, help us to hear today. Help us to understand individually and as the church as well that uh, judgment begins in the house of God, that, God, we just ask for your grace and for your mercy. So help me in the speaking and help us in the hearing today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just looking at this sort of in categories, but the first couple of verses is the woes that he pronounces there. And it's interesting. As I said, uh, he seems to be anticipating that the, that the light or the glimmer of hope that was expressed in chapter 5, verse 14 through 15 there, he seems to anticipate that that will have been disregarded. Now, this is not to say, because he's already talked about this, that the common man, the, the people of Israel had not experienced calamities. In fact, he goes through that. He's already rehearsed that. I sent leanness of, of teeth. I, I sent famine. I sent pestilence. I even sent battles against you, and your young men fell in battle. I've sent all of these things, but yet you have not returned to me. So, so the common man, in many ways, has been suffering under these calamities that God has sent upon them to call them back to himself. And so Amos picking up this narrative seems to suggest that these in power in the seat of authority had, had rejected that, had not listened to that, had not heeded those warnings from God in that disciplinary hand. And so he talks to them, he speaks of them at ease in Zion and Samaria, but he says there, says there, there in those verses, the distinguished men to whom all of Israel comes. So he's saying, woe upon these. 
And I think he means here particularly those in authority, those in positions as judges with power and wealth and, and, and authority to exercise or in some ways to isolate themselves from the calamities of the common man. Those who by their wealth and power could, <coughs> could secure themselves even while those around them suffered. So now Amos turns to them. They've rejected this glimmer of hope and turned away from God. And now he pronounces his woes upon them. He says of them that they are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. So as I said, that's Judah and that's in Israel as well. But the two descriptives there are they are at ease and they are comfortable, as he says there. They are, they are secure, though they feel secure. That's a, it's almost unthinkable to be pronouncing woe upon those who are at ease and those who feel secure. They are in the least, the least likely place to believe a condemnation of woe. It would be as though we would say or God would say to those in, in powerful positions in our government in this nation who have by crook or by hook established their positions, the bureaucracy, if you will. It would be like saying to them in their ease and in their security that there is woe pronounced upon you by God. It would, they would think to themselves, well, I'd like to see who could remove us. We are so entrenched and so powerful and so influential and so wealthy and authoritative that nobody in this world can bring us down. And Amos is speaking to such people as that. And he says to them, woe to you. Not only are they at ease and they feel secure, but as I mentioned, they are the distinguished men of the foremost of nations. So Israel had expanded at this time almost to the, to the scope of David's kingdom under Jeroboam II. And so they, they were growing and they were mighty and they were the foremost of nations in many ways because so many of these others were in the midst of battles themselves and were being weakened, which is what provided for Israel's growth as well. And so he says, woe to those who are in power and in authority and in places of authority in this foremost of cities, distinguished by that position. And then he adds here, to whom all of Israel come. And that has the idea of they come there for justice and they come there for righteousness. If there is a dispute among the people, they come there and they let these in power and authority and the judges make rulings there. And he's already indicted them for taking bribery and they were... Uh, decrying the, the just cause of the innocent and, and elevating the guilty and corrupting justice. That's who the woes are upon. There is strong application to our, to our nation today and our government and governments around the world where this pursuit of power and corruption has taken over and the common man is nothing but fodder to, pro, to provide for the coffers of those who are drawing from that. We send our young men overseas to die in battles to protect what they are told is American interest. All the while we find out later that people are profiting from the war. And so you have that sort of corruption to whom all the citizens of America come for justice and they can none be found there. You can make application to the institutional church as well. The church where there ought to be truth and righteousness and the exaltation and the helping of the needy and the lifting up of the poor and the, and the innocent vindicated and the guilty condemned where the church ought to have been speaking truth. We have become corrupt in many ways as well. The institutional church. There is, a, there is a ministry for profit. 
There's all sorts of gold and appliances and all the, all the attachments of wealth and seek, uh, wealth seeking and prosperity preaching all around us so the church could hear this indictment as well. But it is a woe pronounced upon these. And that is a serious place to be. Notice in verse 2 and beyond there as well. It's almost as if he's saying, in essence, your greatness will not save you. These cities that he mentions here uh, are in Assyria, Babylon, and certainly Philistia. And they were at one time capital cities and defense cities. They were the citadels. They were the central power or the center of power for these once great nations. And he says to Israel in their greatness and in their ideals that they could not be brought down from this lofty place. He says to them, go over to Kauna and take a look. And go from there down to Hamath the Great and, and then go down to Goth of the Philistines. Are they better, are they, Israel he's speaking of, are they better than these kingdoms? Are you mightier than they once were? In fact, it's ironic that they were, uh, they were kingdoms mightier than Israel that were run out of that land by God to make room for his chosen nation. And they were occupying the very places that once great and powerful nations occupied. And now through God's blessings, they had come to the place of having great power and authority there and had no enemies even at the moment at least that were a great threat to them. And he says, go look at these nations. Take a look. Were they not great nations? Were they not once fortified? Were they not once expanding their borders? All of these nations once fulfilled that. For America, we might say, go look around, God would say to America. Go look at Nazi Germany, where they won once once a mighty power. Many people say, were it not for the grace of God, the, the, the Nazi party would have taken control of the world. What about the communists, the Soviet Union, who was once mighty and feared and they fell as well? Go further back. Go to the Roman Empire. Go to all the kingdoms that were once as mighty and mightier in their day as we are in our day today. Take a look at them, America. Because there was a time when they thought they couldn't be removed either. And that's the warning he's giving to his people Israel. And it's a warning that we ought to hear as well. I hope particularly our leaders in this nation hear it. But certainly I hope the church hears it as well. It's as if Amos is saying to them, or God is saying through Amos to Israel, are you more fortified than these? Has your territory extended beyond their borders? If they could not forestall, as it were, their, their collapse, can you, Israel? And so it's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is no. And then to add insult to injury, he says to them, would you, would you then put off the day of calamity? Would you say, it's not coming upon us. Go take a look. That's what they thought. They were, much, they were mighty as you are. They had, they had chariots and they had warriors and they were dominating the globe. They, they were as secure in their position as you are. But would you put off the day of calamity when there are testimonies all around you of nations who did the same thing but who were yet overthrown by the providence of God through another nation that they expected not? I really wish our nation would hear that. Our leaders particularly in this nation would hear that. Being American doesn't give us a guarantee of perpetual dominance in the world or across the globe. Look around, God would say to us. Look around at the other nations who once thought they were impenetrable. 
that had the that had the might and the power to subdue every nation and no one dared come against them and yet in God's providence and because of their own wickedness God allowed them to be overthrown and many of those nations are suffering under that overthrow today and I, I think he would say to our nation and certainly to those in power in the institutional church in this nation look to the examples none can stand before the decrees of God Almighty to bring them into deliverance neither can you Israel and neither can this nation are you more fortified no not only could they not forestall that collapse he's saying to them but they, they go the opposite that phrase in chapter uh, 6 verse 3 and would you bring near the seat of violence has the ideal I think there of of not only can you not forestall your collapse, but in the process of the announcement of that coming collapse, you, you, you double down on injustice. The seed of justice where people ought to have got justice has for you become a seed of violence. You do violence rather than justice. Would you do that in the face of your coming collapse? The answer in application for our nation is absolutely we would. We're doing it. In the face of, of coming collapse, we are doubling down on the perversion of justice. And every man seems to think that by the perversion of it, he might gain some higher ground and make himself isolated or isolate himself from the calamity to come. It's not going to happen in Israel. It's not going to happen in America or any other nation. And it's not going to happen in this nation with the professing church as well. Not by their power and not by their might. Not only do they not forestall God's coming judgment, but they dare to pervert justice in the very, in the very aroma of that justice. Notice as well in verses 4 through 6 the indulgence, the indulgences which he points out that they were enjoying even while the calamities came upon the common people. He mentioned several things here. Those who recline on beds of ivory. I was reading this week and said that in that particular, we hear ivory and we think of something of great infinite value and that might have not been all that valuable here, but it was more than what they ought to have been doing. In other words, he's, he's laying this, a description of these people out. Calamity is looming. The common people have already experienced it and they, are, they have been oppressed by it. But because you were powerful and wealthy and in places of authority, you ignored the plight of those common men enduring the consequences for your sinfulness. And you thought that you were isolated from that. Rather than grieving and mourning and, and sleeping in the dust as it were, you laid yourself out on beds of ivory. I mean, you remember in, in Jonah, whenever he went and preached the message to Nineveh, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. They got in the dust, put sackcloth upon their, their backs, and they, they inflicted themselves, as it were, to, to somehow be indicative of the grieving they felt inwardly. While that ought to have been what was happening in Israel, they were reclining on ivory beds isolated and cut off and immune from the suffering uh, coming upon the common people whom they had been exploiting and the injustice they had been inflicting upon them. They were relaxing in their ivory beds. That word there, sprawling on their couches, had the imagery I was reading of, of someone who was thrown all their limbs. They were, they were not covering up on an ivory bed, insecure, uh, anticipating some invasion. They were sprawled out. 
Uh, I read uh, one time, it was, a, it was kind of an interesting study, but they were talking about people's personalities could be uh, somewhat determined by the way they sleep. If you slept on your stomach, you were a very guarded person. If you slept on your side, away from the other person, you had another personality and all. And the person, I remember the person that just sleeps like he got run over by a steamroller, that's a very comp- a comfortable, confident person. They're not afraid of anything. They, they don't feel vulnerable at all. That's the imagery here. Not only when you ought to have been in ashes, you were laying on ivory beds. And when you ought to have been paranoid about the coming calamity, you were sprawled out, completely feeling invulnerable. And oh, how vulnerable you are. That's what you should have been doing. You can make this application to nations and to to persons either way. They, are, they were enjoying all the delicacies, the lambs of the flock and the calves from the midst of the stall. That's what they, that's communicating here. They were enjoying the delicacies of the land. When you ought to have been fasting, you ought to have been depriving yourself of every delicacy and every luxury and every comfort for the calamity that is being forecasted over your heads and hopes that God might relent in some ways. But are you doing that? No. You think you can push off the day of calamity and draw near the seat of violence and rest in relaxation and partake of the delicacies while the calamity of God holds over your head. You don't think it's going to happen. And boy, that's exactly the thought in people's mind today in America. It's the thought in a lost man's mind when he hears the judgment of God proclaimed. He thinks that's not going to happen. That's myth. That's not true. That's a crutch for weak people, that Christianity thing. That's not going to happen to me. You deceive yourself. You ought to be grieving and mourning in hopes that God might relent and bring about repentance in that situation. But how many are in our day? Not only were they having this delicacies, verse 5, they improvised to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves. The issue there is not the composing of songs. David composed wonderful songs. Read them. But they're songs to praising God. He says they compose songs like David for themselves. And they, and they, and they ad-libbed, as it were, to the harp. It says they improvised to the sound of the harp. And that suggests to me emotional or instinctive, uh, fleshly uh, creating of music. They made the music and they improvised on the music. They weren't following orderly music and they weren't following notes written down ahead of time and, and performing, as it were, or playing along a familiar path. They would play these notes at random and they were improvising. It was all about expressing myself. Oh, what a commentary on today's culture. I mean, to me, that's the premier attribute of America today. Self-expression. I'm not free if I can't do it. And that's exactly what we've embraced. Freedom to this world today means the absolute right to re-express myself, however corrupt or however perverted myself may be, for you to forbid it is to invade my privacy or my freedom and to infringe upon my freedom. That's the way Israel was. They were improvising to the harp and they were creating and composing music for themselves, not for God. They ought to have been singing praises for God. If they were going to praise, sing for themselves at all, it should have been a funeral dirge with the calamity that was hanging upon their head. But rather, they were expressing themselves 
and singing music and making music for themselves to satisfy their own fleshly urges and lustfulness. Verse 6, they drank wine in the, almost the sacrilegious way. They were doing it through sacrificial bowls. So, so they were not only imbibing in the midst of this pending calamity, but they were doing so in sacrificial bowls, bowls that had been set apart for the use of God. So they were combining the pursuit of the flesh in sacrificial vessels. And oh, I could preach a sermon on doing that. But that's what they were doing. Remember now, calamity is looming. <laughs> It's been forecasted by the prophets consistently, the major and the minor prophets. They've already experienced it in increments in God's gracious hand, bringing pestilence and sickness and, and uh, drought and even war at times. They had already been experiencing the signs of it, but yet they had become so hardened to this that this is the way they were behaving. He says, even, the, even with the drinking of the wine and the sacrificial bowls, they were anointing themselves with the finest of oils. There's a, there's a place for anointing oneself with oil as a, an expression of gratitude for God and, and, and reminding of God's bountiful blessings into our lives. So there is a way in which you might have done that in a way that honored God, but not these people. They were anointing themselves with the finest oil because they themselves were deserving of it in their own minds. We have, we have established our place we have might and we have an expanded kingdom and the people have prospered and we have prospered greatly even while they endured calamity in many ways and we are, we are unshakable and we were solidified in our place. Why ought we not to have the finest of oils to, to moisten our skin and to moisten our hair? We take care of ourselves, our physical satisfaction here. All this they were doing. And then the great contrast in verse 6. Yet, here's the real sin of this. Not that they lied on ivory beds, not that they ate delicacies, not that they even improvised sound, and not that they composed songs for themselves. All of these things might have been done in ways that might have even honored God. Their great sin is that they were doing all of these things completely out of selfish motives and self-satisfaction, all the while Joseph is ruined. I love it that he uses Joseph here because you remember he was the brother that was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was the one who was left for dead. And it's as if Israel had done that to his brother, to his brethren. They had this secure elite power group that were prospering and reveling in their prosperity while the common men were enduring the calamities the Lord was sending to call them back. And they, in a sense, had sold their own people into slavery. You did all of this rather than mourn at the ruin of Joseph. And to me, I couldn't help but think of that in America as well today. They do all of this and they prosper and they have their multi-billion dollar properties and they, and they have their lives of luxury and, and many of them are all together doing that and they're the movers and the shakers and the policy makers in the world and, and the common man out here endures the difficulties that these policies bring about and they're suffering and they rather they revel in their glory as it were all the while they ought to have been mourning the destruction of the common man or the Josephs, as it were. This was Israel's, one, one of their great sins. They have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now verse 7, 
Therefore, he says, now you will go into exile. It's striking here that he says, not only will you go into exile, but you're going first. And that's stunning. Because from their, from their perch, you would have thought that the common man, the one who is defenseless, the innocent, the woman, child, and the elderly, they would, they would lead the way into exiles. The enemy would come, overthrow the weak, and then work their way up into the citadels and the palaces and the towers and take the mighty and take them along as well. It's just the opposite. You thought you were secure in your lofty tower. While you ought to have been mourning, you were celebrating and reveling. I'm coming to the tower to get you first. You're going out first. I'm taking, I'm taking you out and then those will follow you who will come alongside you. But you who thought you were untouchable and inapproachable by anything, I'm bringing you out first. It's almost a humiliation on top of these things. Notice he comes back to verse 7, and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. This luxury that you've been enjoying while you ought to have been mourning, that's coming to its conclusion. See, this is what I said Wednesday night, and if you only come on Sundays, you're getting every third one, and you didn't hear Wednesday night about this glimmer of light. Look for me, search, seek for me if you will live. Seek the Lord if you would have life. Do good and not evil if you would have life. There is a possibility to have life and only one possibility, and that is to seek God. But you have turned away from this, and this is all that's left to you. I say this, and you're thinking, man, this is dark, Larry. Yes, it's dark, because if you reject the source of light, there is nothing but darkness for you. This is graphic description of the suddenness of the destruction of Israel, God's own chosen people here, because they rejected life that can only be found in God and it is a serious matter and it is a dark matter to not have life and I don't think the scriptures can speak graphically enough of the horrors of of being without light without the mercy of God so he says to them the sprawlers banqueting will go will pass away I was reading one commentary this week. He's speaking there. The Lord swore by himself. It's almost a, um, an anthropomorphism, the big word. It's God speaking in a human terms where what man would know what he was speaking about. And the author was saying that if God, God is pointing out that if a man gives an oath and that makes it more certain of him following through with what he's saying he's doing, then God says by his own oath. If man is bound by his oath to follow through, how much more sure is the judgment to come upon the oath of God Almighty, who does not waver and who does not relent in that way. That's the, assert, that's the certainty of what's coming. And yet they still would not turn to him. He still goes on. He still goes on saying to them that this judgment is coming. It is as certain as the nature of God is himself. It is as truthful as God is true. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has decreed. And then this stunning statement, I loathe, I loathe the arrogance of Israel, of Jacob. 
and I detest his citadels. His citadels there were generally thought of to be the defensive center of the city. It could be a palace, but it could be a well-guarded place. You can get inside the city gates perhaps, but you're going to have a hard time getting into the citadel. That is the central force or central structure for the power and the might of the city. He says, listen, I the loathe the arrogance of Jacob and I despise or I detest its citadels. None of these things mean nothing to me. It has been removed from him altogether. All of Jacob's prosperity, all of Israel's prosperity is nothing now but a stench in the nostrils of the God who provided that because it's been exploited and it's led them to self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency and adoration of God. And the result was God loathed the arrogance of Jacob. Let me just say, if he loathes the arrogance of Jacob, how much, how much more would he loathe the arrogance of America? How much more would he loathe the arrogance of you? How much more odious is your arrogance uh, in the nostrils of God than theirs? Because you and I are as much recipients of the mercy of God as well. How dare we become arrogant as though there was something meriting that blessing in our lives rather than the grace of God. That's the real issue to me with Israel. They are what they are by the sheer providential mercy of God Almighty. And they were sitting where they were by His providence and yet they would not yield to God at every turn that he called out to them to the prophets. They, they somewhere usurped the mercy of God and said, okay, we're on our own now. We can attain strength by ourselves. God, appreciate the leg up, but we'll handle it from here on in. That attitude invites the judgment of God. And it certainly did in Israel. And I say this to Christian, if you begin by the mercy of God, you didn't get somewhere along in your Christian life and turn and say, God, I appreciate the help to this point, but I got it from here on in. No, you don't. No, you don't, because you're in the same place as Israel in that moment. And he will bring, if you're his, he will bring a severe hand of discipline into that life. So this detestable arrogance Therefore, I will deliver up the city, he says, and it will be if 10 men, the whole analogy there is that the calamity will be such as there will be no one remaining. And I love this part, but he says there at the end, it's curious. He says, one will say, they'll ask him, is anybody left in the house? And he'll say, no one. And he'll, he'll answer that person. He'll say, well, keep, keep quiet for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. And I think the idea there is they were saying all the while the, the day of the Lord will come, whatever the calamity is, the day of the Lord. They were, they were exploiting this phrase, the day of the Lord, as though somehow they could rely on the day of the Lord being a deliverance. He's already warned them it won't be a day of deliverance for you, you who say the day of the Lord. I think that's what's happening here. Such will be the judgment and such the calamity that they will dare not do that anymore. No more. They will not use the Lord's name in vain that way. Don't, don't mention it. The name of the Lord's not to be mentioned here. There's nobody in this house because they used it in that way. Don't say the word of the Lord in this house lest the one person remaining die as well. Ten men in the house, all dead. Had to get somebody to come in from the outside to haul their bodies out. And one person hiding away, perhaps in an inner room. Some people say maybe even a neighbor's house. The whole house had been emptied out under the judgment of God. And because they had been loosely using the name of God and thought that somehow their relationship with God preserved them from the idea of having to be obedient to God. And that is not true. And I think for Christians in general, the idea that you're saved 
to, to disobey or to, to not be under, under discipline when you disobey is to misunderstand what being saved is altogether. To be saved is to, is to, by the grace of God, having been pulled out of darkness into life and been given the capacity now to live an obedient life. You couldn't obey by nature before the new birth. After the new birth, you put to death the old man, and by the new man, you find joyful obedience in the things of God. It's a very different kind of life, and Jacob and Israel had no longer lived that life as well. Uh, I love the analogy he gives here as well. Verse 11, for behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. And then these, these analogies here. Do horses run on rocks? Uh, I've rode enough horses to know not, not preferably. Or does one plow them rocks with oxen? Anybody ever uh, stuck a plow on the ground? You wouldn't do that with a tractor, much less an oxen. You don't drop your plow down on solid rock and have any reasonable expectation that it's going to plow into the rock. That's what he's saying to them here. Those are the analogies. He says, but you have done exactly that. You have, you have turned justice into poison, that which should have been unthinkable, almost an impossibility, you have done. And the fruit of righteousness into bitterness, wormwood. Do people run horses on rocks? No, they shouldn't if they're reasonable. Do people plow rocks with oxen? No, because it's an impossibility that it could be done. They have done exactly that in perverting the justice as it were. They, in essence, were running their horses on rocks and dropping their plows onto rocks. Things that would have been thought impossible Israel was doing. And at the very least, unreasonable. Then he says of them, these same people, you who rejoice in Lodabar. That word literally means a thing of nothing. That's your rejoicing. You're rejoicing in a thing of nothing. And say, by, have, by our own power, have we not taken the horns or the corneum? He calls it there. That's the idea of authority and strength. They actually had come to the place to where they are saying to themselves, even in their hearts, if they didn't say it open, we have come to this place of power by ourselves. And you're saying it in the face of calamity. And while God is bringing incrementally judgments against you to call you back to himself, all the while when you ought to have been in the dust, repenting in sackcloth and ashes, you were taking to yourselves the credit for the place that you had achieved. And that's the, the overwhelming stench of the sin of Israel. Verse 14, he finishes, For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you. I Get this, I am raising them up. That doesn't mean they won't have their own motivations. <laughs> Absolutely. Who wouldn't want to overthrow Israel and take over the Fertile Crescent and have all that prosperity themselves? They, they, their motives clearly were probably selfish or maybe even defensive against Israel out of fear of something. But he says in back of whatever their motives are, I'm raising them up. I'm sending this nation against my own people, Israel. O house of Israel declares the God of hosts. And they, this nation that I'm raising up, they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. So God had raised up a nation to bring upon his own people exactly what he has foretold. And you say, well, that doesn't seem fair of God. They're only human. 
God had reached out to them time and time and time again through the word of the prophets and through providence and the environment, whether it be insects, whether it be drought, whether it be other nations coming against them, raiding and taking over small cities. There time and time and time again, God has sent warning to his people and they had stiffened their necks. And even in Amos' own prophecy, he was offering this glimmer of light. And he continues this prophecy as though he's almost sure that they will not see this light. And that they will continue on in their rebellion and resistance. And God will ultimately bring this judgment upon his people. And we know that he did. We know that he did. 586 B.C. they fell never to rise, uh, never to rise again in that moment. Let me just say that God's, God's warnings in our generation are no less real. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that he would have to send some individual to give a prophecy in regards to what's coming upon America. We have a book of examples exactly how God deals with those nations, particularly those nations who claim righteousness, who claim uh, some sort of endorsement by God and yet do everything in their power to defy everything that is holy to God. And, and I fear, and I think you do as well, that our nation is moving in that direction. And I think there's a lot of common folks who are going to be suffering as a result of the corruptions that are unfolding and unfolding. But God, there is a day, and this is a day of joy, but there is a day when the Lord will have had enough. When, that, when those decrees will, will come out and the redeemed of the Lord will be brought home to the Lord and then there will be uh, the vindication of the justice and righteousness of God Almighty on this planet. That day's coming. And it's not a day that I'm, I'm, I'm rushing because I want to see all the elect of God come into the house of God and I, I pray for mercy for our nation. But as a church, this is where our heart is in the leadership as well is that we be prepared for the suffering that's about to come. And, and, if, and if God is gracious not to bring it upon us, then we need to busy ourselves preparing our children for it. Because somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone is going to have to speak truth uh, to the corrupt uh, world that we live in today. And they're going to pay dearly for speaking that truth. And whether it's us or our children or our grandchildren, a, a generation needs to be being equipped uh, to do that. And may God grant it. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it may have been 20 years ago, the book of Amos may have been a historical study, may have been an interesting archaeological exploration, but we happen to live in a generation when its truths are, are bearing heavily. Lord, we can read this book, we can read your rebuke of your people Israel, and we can recognize that our nation, in some ways we ourselves are are as guilty of the things that they were doing that brought judgment as they were. We may have become more refined and sophisticated and perhaps we would not be so crass as to defy you openly, but Father, in many of the things that we do in our individual lives and as a nation and as a culture are the utmost of defiance. They minimize everything that ought to be maximized and they maximize those things that ought to be minimized. We we rejoice, as he says, in the worthless thing. And so, Father, we ask your forgiveness. We pray that you would bring revival to the church, Father. Would you 
speak into our hearts in a way that would open our eyes and our minds to the glories of Christ, that we might discern the truth of your word and, and be able to bring that to bear in every situation, Lord, that we might stand firm for Christ and be willing to suffer as Christ also suffered. So, Father, in these moments of invitation, we just pray that you would speak to our heart and that we might be made obedient to that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.